Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt, sojourned there. The famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, but when the Egyptians see you and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared, because, or spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to the Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Abram called. Uh, so Pharaoh called Abram and said to him, "What is it you have done to me? Why did you not, did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go." And Pharaoh get, gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Very, very peculiar story. It's easy for us to look at this scenario and immediately think, Abram, you dummy, okay? It started off really great. He recognized the beauty of his wife, but then he just threw under, threw under the bus, basically. He said, hey, here, I want to offer you to Pharaoh so it will go well with me. Okay, that's odd. I don't think any woman in here would feel honored by that, right? Okay, whether you're married or not, uh, if you had a man and he said, baby, you're beautiful, but I want to give you to this other man. Uh, you would be scratching your head. You'd be thinking, and oh, here's the reason why, to protect myself. Um, the lady would definitely not feel honored by it. It's just a weird scenario. So we've got to navigate this a little bit. Uh, and it starts off by telling us that there was a severe famine in the land. So before we talk about that, I want to speak real quick because a famine represents for us as we get into this uh, a certain level of suffering. If you've had anybody under your care and if you could imagine them starving or not or going without, uh, you could imagine it was deeply, deeply painful to uh, Abram and his family to be experiencing. I mean, suffering uh, and a famine. I mean, the, 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 it's the epitome of suffering. Seeing those around you and those under your care are hurting and not having food. And so I want to turn our attention real quickly to Philippians 1.29, and it says this, For it's been granted to you not only uh, granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Not only that you should believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Um, if I was to plan the rest of my life, one of the things I would be grateful for in the rest of my life is, is I'm grateful, grateful to God that He is preserving my belief in the Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm thankful for the gift of faith. It's been granted to me to believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus solely by the grace of God, not because of my wisdom or intellect, not because I figured something out uh, philosophically or theologically that other people are not figuring out it's by the grace of God alone. But this other piece to the verse says it has been granted to me also for the sake of Christ to suffer for his sake. And there's only one part of that verse that I, I would foresee me planning in the future my life to go with, and that's just the belief in Jesus. The other half of the verse, I wouldn't really want to plan my life out in that way. And I think most of us in here, if we just ask what your will was, would, would your will include yourself suffering or not suffering? I think everybody would pretty much conclude, I would rather not suffer. I would rather family members of mine not suffer. And I generally would like the rest of my life to be peaceful and comfortable. I mean, just it, it, it just 
It's just a general consensus among people, even the believers in Jesus, that we would rather not suffer. Is that the case? And if we've seen suffering, we know the, the deep pain that comes with that. We know the confusion that can come with that. We've seen tears flow. And if you've suffered personally or in the midst of suffering, you know, I don't like this. It's not fun. And the goal today is not to say it should be fun. That's not the case at all. Um, but I think we bump up against verses like this and we think, I, I kind of trust my will for my life a little bit better than I trust God's will for my life. Because I don't like the fact that God has said, it's been granted to me not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. And so I, my plans, at first glance, would seem to be better than God's plans. The way I define better. And to be honest, I'm in that same boat. I would just rather the rest of my, I don't, no suffering. And no suffering for the people I love. I would just love that. So there's one sense that my plans, I think, are really better than God's. Because I wouldn't plan my life the way God is planning my life. But a part of God's plan for my life includes this word suffering. And the Bible just teaches this. You can't just look at a verse like Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 and just cut it out. You just can't. It just says it. A part of God's will for your life at times is to suffer. And I don't understand all the ins and outs of that, but it is true. So God often then leads us into situations that will require us to lose trust in ourselves, to lose our dependence in our own abilities, and to bring us to a point of dependence upon God. And this, apparently, according to God, is good for us. I heard somebody say one time, I think it was Jared Wilson, God will not be your only hope until He is your only hope. As long as there are things to hope in, it's easy for the human heart to go and hope here and hope there. But when you're to that point, when your kids are not following Jesus, when you're at that point where you're suffering greatly, what's your hope? Well, your hope is not in other things. Your hope now is in God. Your hope is in God. And apparently, uh, God has His purposes with this. And through natural lenses, we could look at the passage today, and as we look at this passage, we could begin to question God's goodness. Now, we're not going to end there. We're not going to end the sermon today and say, you know, God may be or maybe not good. I don't know. We're not going to end there, I promise. But we could, through natural lenses, interpret the happenings and wonder, is God good or is He not good? What's, what's going on? But what we must remember is that God is always working. He's working everything for His glory and our good. And a good that's defined by God, not a good that's defined by us. A good that's defined by God, not a good that's defined by us. Now, let's turn again our attention to verse 10. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, here's the, the eye-opener. For real, God, I left everything to follow you. I get to the land that you say you're bringing me to, and you tell me to your offspring, I'm going to bring, give, give this land, which is what we looked at last week. I followed you. I did everything that you wanted me to do, and you led me into a famine. Seriously? Imagine what could be going on in Abram's mind. God promised to show him where to go, and God leads him right into a land a famine. And not just famine, there is intentionality in God's word. It says a severe famine. None of us in this room probably have ever experienced famine. You may have experienced hardships where all you've eaten is ramen noodles or ramen, if you want to say it wrongly, um, 
for weeks at a time, months at a time, uh, where you lived on a real tight budget. But most, I would be willing to bet that probably nobody in here has experienced severe famine in your life. Maybe you have, um, and I hate that for you. Um, but if you're in Abram's shoes, you are seeing all those that are under your care and you are seeing them begin to wither away. You're seeing your livestock, you're seeing your family, you're seeing your nephew Lot and his family. You are seeing them in, in severe famine. They don't even have food. And my goodness, what would you be thinking if you were Abram? Would you not be wondering, God, what are you doing? Now, seriously, if you... If my family, if I had to see my wife, my son, at this point, Abram didn't have a son yet, but he had those under his care. If I had to um, be all of your caregivers and I had to watch you, I was just watching you being malnourished and then uh, just begin to lose weight, I would be wondering like crazy, God, where are you? I followed you here. You're the one who led me here and now are you not able to provide? He's watching them starve. God would seem very weak in this situation if I were Abram. You don't have the ability, apparently, God? What's going on? And so I think in seasons like this, when we are in famine, and you may not be in actual famine, but in seasons that feel like God is absent, in seasons of suffering, we have four common things that we tend to drift towards. And this is people in general. Generally, Christians, not as much, because the Spirit of God is, is indwelling them and, and empowering them to trust imperfectly, as it may be. Trust God and say, God, I trust you, even though I don't understand. But there are four common drifts in times of suffering, and I want us to be cautious of those drifts as we look at the rest of the passage. The first is the deism drift. When we're in a severe famine, it would have been easy for Abram to think, God is certainly not concerned with us. God made everything, he called me into this land, but now God is absent and he's up there and the, just the normal processes of, of life in this world are moving on, the weather patterns, uh, just the things are going as they're going and God is simply not concerned. He's just up there, God's there, he just doesn't care. And in times of famine, it's easy to drift in that direction. God, I, apparently you're not, you're just not, you just simply, simply don't care. The second drift is the Satan is sovereign drift. The second drift in times of famine is the Satan is sovereign drift. In some circles, it's easy to talk about Satan in such a way or hear about Satan in such a way where people believe Satan is actually sovereign. And the Bible does say that he is the ruler of this world, that he is walking around as a roaring lion, but he is not a ruler of this world in the sense that he is in charge of this world. And in times of suffering, often people will comfort themselves with a really small God of wants, and it really got really huge Satan of doing. So God is back here. He's the passive, you know, he's on the side. He's passive. And he really wants to stop these things from happening. But Satan is over here and he's really, really big and he's really, really strong. And God is simply unable to do what he wants to do because Satan, after all, is the ruler of this world. So the drift becomes, I'm going to start comforting myself with a small God and a big Satan. This severe thing is happening because, not because God can or can't do anything because Satan's really, really big. And that, unfortunately, is a drift for some. Third drift is the atheism drift. They see a famine and they think, certainly God, if he's there and he's good, would do something. And because he's not doing anything and suffering persists and tragedy happens, God is not there. He's just simply not there, the atheism drift. And then the fourth drift is it's all, it's all up to me drift. And this is what Abram begins to think through. It's all up to me drift. It's if I'm going to get out of this, God certainly needs some help because he can't do it on his own. 
So I'm going to do something myself. And this is where we tend to, as the church, we can begin to think, okay, God and me, it's, it, I, I really need to help him out because I don't like my situation right now and I'm going to get myself out of it. This is what we see Abram doing. And I want us to understand this before, when we look at Abraham's folly here, Abram's folly as he passes his wife off to protect himself, I want us to again think deeply about why Abram did what he did. And I think you and I may begin to, to be able to understand it a little bit. We may be able to understand, okay, I, I kind of see where Abram's coming from now. Look in verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know you're a woman of beautiful appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but they will let you live. So say that you're my sister, and then it will all go well with me because of you, and my life will be spared for your sake. Brilliant, Abram. While this is inexcusable in every way, there's not a single angle we can look at this and say, okay, that's justifiable. It almost is. Hang in there with me. It's not at all, but we can kind of understand as we begin to peel back the curtain a little bit. So before we hate on him, let us consider the situation. Abram already knows that God has a plan for his life. God had told Abram through him and in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Abram and his family had left. He had already worshipped God. He had built altars in the name of the Lord. He knows that in him the nations of the world would be blessed. And so God was going to do something big with him. But apparently he couldn't stop me from about starving to death. So he's thinking these things in his mind. The famine is severe. It is a desperate moment he followed God. It ended in famine. The option is to stay in the land and watch everything wither away and die. Or in his mind, it's go up to Egypt or down to Egypt and go to certain death that way. In his mind, it's death or death. How is he going to do what God has called him to do? What's the solution? Desperate times call for des desperate measures, after all. And if you are starving, and those under your care are starving, and you're trying to think, God, how are you going to do this? There's only one option. Sarah, I've got it. The only way for our lives to be preserved is to say that you're my sister. After all, we want to see God's purposes happen through us. We want to see this, but if God can't save us here in the famine... I don't want to risk going into Egypt without a plan because I don't know if God can save me over Pharaoh. It's death either way. How can I trust going into Egypt if I'm just walking out of famine that God will protect us both there if he's not protecting us here? And you start putting yourself there and you're, you can kind of start thinking, okay, what is going to be our option? It's either starve here or risk going to Egypt. And the pharaohs of Egypt were notoriously uh, powerful. They had the Nile River, so they had a wealth of resources. If this would work, if it works, Sarai, we can get nourished. We can get food for ourselves, for Lot, our nephew, for all of our slaves that are with us, for all of our animals. We could be well if this works. Sarai, this is the only chance we got. What are we going to do? There's no food. There's no water. Baby, I don't know what else to do. Well, Abram, 
Really? You just want to give me to their king? You can imagine the, uh, the domestic dispute that's going on in the home with Abram and Sarai in their little tent that they're living in, for goodness sake. Ladies, how would you like to just travel as a sojourner living in a tent with your husband and never being able to nest? I don't know if Sarai back then was a nester, but I'm assuming that in a tent that would be very difficult. You know, it's like with the Flintstones when, uh, when uh, what is it, Barney and his wife, Rosie O'Donnell, we watched this recently, uh, in this show, she uh, sweeps, and uh, it's a dirt floor, so she sweeps into this uh, dustpan, and then she goes, eh, throws it behind her. <clears throat> so living in a tent, Abram comes to this moment, I've got an idea, baby, desperate times, it's desperate measures, we'll say you're my sister, and it's half true, we find that out, uh, that she is, in fact, his half-sister. In Abram's mind, that's the only way that they could both live. It's the only way that their bellies could be filled. It's the only way that their livestock could be saved. It's the only way what God said about him could come to fruition. It's the only way in his mind. In verse 14 to 16, here's what's crazy. We see it worked perfectly. The plan actually works. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, sure enough, the Egyptians... They saw the woman, and she was very beautiful. Pause real quick. Remember, uh, Sarai lives to be 127 years old, Abram 175 years old. So that kind of helps us out here. Apparently, um, and I'm still, ladies have to deal with so much more in your bodies. You know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But uh, it's still yet a mystery. I've been married for like, you know, years now. And the, human, the, the women's body, it's just confusing still. You ladies, I, you got to go through so much. Uh, but she, we find out, is past the age of childbearing. But apparently, so, so all the insides still maybe went to the same pattern of years of living. So maybe, you know, 30, 40, or, or 50 years to 60 years menopausal period. But if she lived 127 years old, she's like midlife. And so we're, think 30, mid-30s to 40 years old equivalent if you're 127 and she's 65. Um, so she's beautiful in appearance and it always used to confuse me because how, how could this, she must have been a most, you know, like the most beautiful 65-year-old woman ever, but if she lived 127, she's probably like in the ages of like 30-something, okay? So the Pharaoh, his eye is caught, and these princes, their eyes get caught by the beauty of this 65-year-old Sarai, and it begins to work. Word begins to spread in Egypt. There's this man named Abram and his sister Sarai, they came in and all of their livestock and man, Pharaoh, you got to see this girl. She is gorgeous. I mean, you've got to, the ladies here, yeah, okay, they're all right. But this Sarai, you've got to see her. So this woman was a beautiful, beautiful woman. So Sarai caught the attention of all these men and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Verse 16, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and male, female servants and male donkeys and camels. It actually works. Could you imagine, even though the, the tension that was there with Abram and Sarai, when you're at that point where neither you're malnourished and you just need food, there's famine in the land, and it actually works, you're belly begins to be full. You slowly eat. You get back to strength and your 
camels and your animals and all the other animals that are listed begin to get food, it actually works. Pharaoh dealt well with them. They were taken care of. They had everything they need. And Abram finally found the one who could take care of him. And his name was Pharaoh. Pharaoh did what he needed God to do over here in the land that he came from. When God seemed weak and powerless, the king was active and powerful. (laughs) Now, doesn't it seem up to this point really backwards? I mean, the whole thing is a confusing mess. But if you, again, put yourself in his shoes, you can kind of begin to understand this, and then his plan actually works. The it's up to me drift works for him. Except he doesn't have his wife, you know. So I guess it didn't work perfectly. But the plan that he wanted to do, now it's working. And so what happens next? Well, verse 17, God begins to show his power. Verse 17, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said to him, What is it that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and leave. Go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. God afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai. Now, God, who seemed so inactive, who seemed so passive, who seemed not to care at all, apparently he cares. He afflicts the most powerful king in the land, most likely in the world, this Pharaoh in his house with great plagues. God is, in fact, active. And what does God's activity tell us about God? Well, it tells us clearly that God is most is more powerful than the most powerful king. Do you realize kings in that day, pharaohs in that day, made a name for themselves and actually believed themselves to be divine? They would demand worship from their people. And here is this powerful man who provided Abram with food. It felt like God couldn't provide Abram with food. And here is God revealing himself to be so powerful even over the king of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. Abram gets to see God show himself more powerful than the one who gave him food. God flexes his muscles just a little bit, and the most powerful king in the world panics. Now, if you didn't realize this, there's been some um, political turmoil of late. Okay? If you've been caught up on the internet, if you're one of those, it's on the internet, by the way, on Facebook, just please stop. You annoy everyone, okay? Like, it's just awful. It's absolutely insane. Nobody is nice online. You realize that? Everybody's very, very mean. It's just a mean place to go. So just stay off, okay? Um, as we put this live on the internet right now. Um, Okay, it's awful. And get this. I want you to see this. Do you realize that God is more powerful than Donald Trump? Do you realize that? Do you realize that God is more powerful than Barack Obama? Do you realize that God is more powerful than the most powerful 
governments in the world. It's just in a second. If God wanted to plague Donald Trump's house, I mean, he's already plagued his head with it, that hair, but <laughs> in a second, okay, in a second, I mean, God is, is so powerful. The most powerful kings in the world are nothing to God. Absolutely nothing. He plagues this Pharaoh. And then what happens? Well, the Pharaoh then does not punish Abram. If I was the Pharaoh, I would be pretty upset with Abram and I would punish him. Uh, I would not leave. I would not let him leave with the stuff he came in with. I would make him leave with nothing if I didn't kill him. But that's not the case. The Pharaoh corrects Abram, gives Sarai back. He sends them away with everything, including full bellies and well-fed livestock. And God showed Abram and Sarai just how powerful he was. If they never experienced, if, listen to this, if they never experienced that famine, if they never went through the turmoil of wondering, God, where are you? They would have never seen God's power over the Pharaoh. God always has a plan. He always has a plan. They're exiting, they're exiting Egypt now with everything they needed before they entered Egypt. And we see it was through God's power that they're led out. God is always working even when we think he's not. And this is why we are not deists. We reject when things around us seem like God is not working, we reject that notion and we trust, no, by God's grace, I'm going to believe and know that God has a plan. God has a plan. I don't understand it. It's famine. My belly aches. But God is up to something. And I'm going to reject this notion of being a deist. I'm also going to reject the Satan is sovereign model. Yes, Satan is alive and active and he works, but he is never overthrowing God from his throne. And God is always working. Later, when we see in Genesis, when we look at the life of Joseph, Joseph would say, it was not you who sent me into Egypt, it was God. What the enemy meant for evil, God meant for what? Good. God has his purposes. We reject the idea or the notion. We don't comfort ourselves in seasons of suffering with a big Satan and a little God. You hear me? Don't comfort yourselves by thinking, well, God really doesn't want any of this to happen. This is just Satan working. Don't comfort yourself that way. It should not comfort us in our mind or in our heart to go to bed at night and think, God just doesn't want any of this to be happening. Satan really is having a heyday. Reject that lie. And Satan certainly thinks that, but God is always Working. God is never the passive agent sitting by with his hands in his pocket wondering, I wish, I wish I could do something. How could I intervene here? That is not the God of the scriptures. We reject, we reject these notions. The third one is the atheism drift. We never buy into the fact by the grace of God. Well, maybe God just simply, maybe this is all just a joke. Maybe God isn't a reality at all. By the Holy Spirit, we recognize, no, God is. And so for believers, we should take note. We should take note. 
as we look at the life of Abram. When God plans suffering for us, when he gifts us with that, something we would never gift for ourselves, something we would never even gift for anybody else, it, it's confusing. But it's there. The scriptures say it. Look, remember Abram, remember this famine and remember that God had a plan to show Abram how powerful he was and to take care of Abram. It wasn't Pharaoh that fed Abram. It was God. It was God that took care of them through an evil king, Pharaoh. Yes, amen, Maria. <clears throat> Called out. <laughs> God always has a plan. So God sustained the calling on Abram's life even through a wicked king. Only God can do something like that. Only God can do something like that. He really is good the way he defines good. He really, really is. So for believers, we need to hear that. And here's what I want to do. I want, us to, po- I want to point to the gospel in this, in this section as well. I want to read a passage. It's sort of long. Okay, hang with me. It's really good, so don't just check out. Um, and then I want to point us to Jesus. Okay, I want to point us to the cross here. And if you're not a believer in this room, and you, maybe you don't even know what that means, um, to become a Christian, God has to act upon your life. I mean, you can't make yourself feel convicted. And for those who are believers in this room, you know before that before you were a Christian, you didn't feel the level of conviction that you did before you became a Christian. God, God has to come and convict your heart. It's called regeneration. And when God breathes life into you, your life begins to look different, and you repent of things. You start saying, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I'm going to repent of that. I'm not going to trust in myself anymore, and I'm going to turn, and I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to trust in His work. Not in my own any longer. I'm going to follow him all the days of my life. I'm not going to follow myself anymore. I've messed things up enough. And so you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus. You turn away from the life you're living. You walk with Jesus. And I want that for you. If you're not a believer, I want that for you. I I really believe a majority of the people in this room are Christians. But for some of you, um, you've heard the gospel message before. But it's just gone in one ear. And maybe it kind of went down a little bit. And it kind of tingled your heart a little bit. But then it kind of went up and went out another ear, and you just, you just move on. And you just try to do better, and you keep going to church or whatever it may be. But this morning, I want you to move from death to life. I want you to see yourself as an enemy of God, and I want you to see that God loves you anyways. That while you are yet a sinner, Christ died for us. This is the love of God. And I want, to, I want you to trust in the work of Jesus on your behalf. Let me read this. This is about... True preaching, and this is what I hope is always true about any of the sermons that are preached here at this church. I believe that those sermons which are the fullest, and this is my good buddy Charles Spurgeon, by the way. So, I believe that those sermons which are the fullest of Christ are most likely to be the blessed to the conversion of the hearers. Let your sermons be full of Christ from beginning to end, crammed full of the gospel. As for myself, brethren, I cannot preach anything else but Christ and his cross. For I know nothing else. And long ago, like the Apostle Paul, I determined not to know anything else save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
people have always asked me, what is the secret of your success, Mr. Spurgeon? I always answer that I have no other secret but this. I've preached the gospel, not about the gospel, but the gospel, the full, free, glorious gospel, the living Christ, who is the incarnation of the good news. Preach Jesus Christ, brethren, always and everywhere. And every time you preach, be sure to have much of Jesus Christ in the sermon. You remember the story of the old minister who heard a sermon by a young man when he was asked by the preacher what he thought it was, what he thought of it, he was rather slow to answer. But at last he said, if I must tell you, I did not like that sermon at all, young man. There was no Christ in your sermon. The young man said, no, no, no Christ, because I didn't see Christ in the text, end quote. Oh, said the old minister, but you do not have, but you do not know that from every little village and every town and every tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London. Wherever I, whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road here to Jesus, and I mean to keep Keep on his track till I get to him. Well, said the young man, but suppose you're preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. Then I will go over the hedge in a ditch, but I will get to him. So we must, brethren, when we, we must, we must have Christ in our discourses. Whatever else is or not in them, we must have Christ. There ought to be enough of the gospel in every sermon to save a soul. Take care that it is so when you, when you are called to preach before Her Majesty the Queen. And if you have to preach to chairwoman or chairman, still always take care that there is the real gospel in every sermon. Uh, that, that's our hope. And here's the deal. I want you to, to think about what Abram did with his wife in the dire circumstances that he was in. And we're going to run to Jesus this morning. And we're just going to see the love of Jesus, see what He has done for us. If you remember, Abram offered his bride to an enemy to preserve himself in a foreign land. You hear that? Abram offered his wife to the enemy to preserve himself in a foreign land. This is what Abram did. And I I start thinking, you know what? There's another bride and there's another groom that the Scriptures speak about. And what was that groom, that bridegroom, Jesus' role? Well, Jesus came to a foreign land. He came to earth and offered Himself to preserve and save His rebellious bride. Jesus did not use His bride for self-preservation. Jesus gave His life for our preservation. Like these connections are everywhere. De Jesus did not use and abuse his bride. He died for his bride. And friends, this is the good news of the gospel. We were rebellious and we don't have a Christ who threw us under the bus, washed his hands with us and walked away to preserve himself. He walked into earth and he came and sought and saved a lost bride and won her over through wooing her and loving her, died on the cross to win her. He saved us at great cost to himself. When all Abram could think about was preserving himself, Jesus comes and thinks about you and dies in your place. Friends, that 
is good news. And the question then is this. Are you a part of the bride of Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you experienced His love? Men, it can be odd for us to be thinking about that. Okay? Um, it's what the Scriptures call us, the bride of Christ. There's no Christian that gets into the Christian faith without experiencing His love. And so that's what's going to hang over your head today. It's just the Holy Spirit working. Are you a part of His bride? By His grace, have you repented of yourself? And have you trusted in Him? Have you been born again? And if you are a part of His bride, then just trust in His sovereign work. As we listen to this sermon, as we listen to this text to be preached, think about the fact you may be in famine. You may be in a season of difficulty. But you know what? God is working. Reject that satanic lie that He doesn't care. Oh, how much Satan wants you to doubt the goodness of God in times of suffering. Reject it by His grace and trust Him. Say, God, I know that you have a plan. And let's worship Him here together. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. Jesus, I thank You that You didn't throw us under the bus. You came for us. And I thank You that every passage that we've looked at in Genesis, every single one that we will look, back, look at in Genesis, is going to lead us to You. Jesus, we want communion with You. We want to know you personally. We don't want to just know information about you. We want to know you personally. And together this morning, help us, Holy Spirit, lead us to worshiping and glorifying the Son, Jesus Christ. If there's anybody here who is not a believer, I ask that they, by your grace, Holy Spirit, just grant repentance. They cannot repent truly on their own, so grant it. And help them, by your grace, to trust in you and just say, Jesus, I just trust you. And as my dear friend said one day, I just told him, just ask Jesus to save you. And he cried out, Jesus, save me. And if that's all you can get out, just Jesus, save me. And experience the goodness of God here today. God, I just ask that you would do that this morning. And help us, just help us to trust you. We, we believe that you will. It's going to be our joy to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.